Hey guys, welcome to Hope It Helps. My guest today has been working in the healthcare and pharmaceutical industry for over 10 years. Growing up, she had always been interested in the medical field, which led to her pursuing her pharmacy degree at university, and due to her passion for research, decided to then get her master's degree in bioscience enterprise. After working in the industry and with her patients for a few years, she realized it wasn't fulfilling for her anymore and that there was something missing. She then discovered functional medicine, which is an area that focuses on working with patients in a more holistic manner, focusing first on the why behind a patient's symptoms, and then putting into place a treatment plan that is personally tailored to their specific needs. After completing her functional medicine certification, she also completed her health coach certification, and over the last few years has built her own incredibly successful medical practice in the UK. During this episode, we discuss her journey working in the medical field. She walks us through what functional medicine is and its benefits, and we talk about the importance of taking full ownership of our own health. Throughout her career, she has always been focused on looking at medicine from a patient's perspective. She has been able to help transform the health and lives of so many people through her medical practice. And so always remember to do our own research, ask why, challenge our physicians, and take the power of controlling our health back into our own hands. Please welcome to the show, the incredible Dr. Amal Ismail. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. So, Amal, I found out about you quite recently through a friend of mine that you've been working with, Yasmin. So shout out to Yasmin. I'm sure she's going to be listening to this at some point. Uh, and it was really interesting listening to the work that you guys have been doing together and learning about what function med- medicine is. That's something that I haven't been aware of in the past. So I thought it'd be super interesting to talk to you to get to understand a bit more about yourself, your background, what functional medicine actually is. And, you know, because I think bringing awareness to things like this could potentially help some people in ways that they previously weren't aware of. So that's what I'd like to start with today. But before we get into all that, why don't you give everyone just a little bit of background about yourself, you know, where you grew up, and we'll take it from there. Great. Thank you so much. It's such a privilege to be on, um, on your podcast. And Yasmin is such a wonderful uh, friend and a patient. So thank, I, definitely a shout out for her <laughs> for, <laughs> sure. this, uh, for this introduction. Um, it is really a passion of mine and a mission to spread functional medicine across the globe. Um, and uh, it's uh, lovely to be here to talk about it. So uh, so my um, so originally I'm Palestinian. I grew up in Jordan um, and left um, when I was 18 to go study a pharmacy. So I completed my pharmacy degree at uh, Nottingham University. Then I practiced in the hospital setting. After which I decided to kind of I had a big passion for uh, research, and so I went to Cambridge to do um, a degree in bioscience enterprise, which basically focuses on how do you take innovation from the lab to the market? How do you commercialize it? How do you make it accessible to patients? And that was a really fascinating um, degree. I met a lot of wonderful people. And as part of that, I um, traveled um, to New York, lived there for a while, worked at um, one of the pharmaceutical companies, um, like putting, putting into practice what I had learned. And um, following that, I had quite a a varied career before I ended up into functional medicine. I worked worked in a startup, uh, actually, in Jordan that uh, uh, was aimed at uh, promoting um, cancer research um, and in specifically looking at how do you optimize um, uh, medications from a genetic standpoint for the population in the MENA region, which was great. 
but then the financial crisis happened. <laughs> there was no more funding. <laughs> um, and I did a bit of um, work with my dad uh, before I moved back to London. And this is where I joined the consulting industry. And I worked with the pharmaceutical industry on um, strategy. And in specifically, we worked on um, actually applying what I learned both from pharmacy and, um, and bioscience enterprise is how do we take um, all the information that we know about the drugs, about the disease, and how do we communicate it in the most effective way for all our stakeholders, and how do we make those drugs accessible um, through, um, uh, through governments and uh, and so that was a really fascinating work. We designed also um, a lot of educational material. But um, throughout, this, um, throughout this process, I, you know, I had a really wonderful career, but I wasn't, I, it wasn't fulfilling because I felt that while I was interviewing patients and working with a lot of patients, especially in the chronic disease area, I realized that there's something missing. And that thing that's missing is the fact that in the conventional setting, what we're doing all the time is we're trying to um, name the disease, blame it, and then tame it, right? We're not really looking holistically at what's going on with the patient. What, what's the why? What's driving um, the inflammation in the first place? Why did this patient develop breast cancer? Why did this patient develop diabetes? There are clues in their life that we just simply ignore. Um, and we look at this sort of... Um, sort of uh, backdoor prescription heavy uh, approach to medicine. Um, so it never sat well with me and I kind of kept exploring um, different options. I was very fascinated by integrative medicine and Chinese medicine and I was just always reading about it. And then um, it's really all through on my own personal journey, I got very sick um, living the lifestyle of consulting, traveling, working really long hours burning the midnight oil, you know, <laughs> and, um, and I just didn't know what was going on. So I got really unwell and then I met a functional medicine nutritionist and it just blew my mind how she, um, uh, how she assessed my entire life story and gave me clues as to why I am in the state I'm in. And then I went on to sort of this healing journey where um, I changed my lifestyle, my diet, um, so on and so forth. Uh, but ultimately, while I was still working in consulting, I, um, I, my husband was a big fan of Tony Robbins, and he said, I think you just need to come with me <laughs> to one of those, um, to his UPW event, and um, maybe that will give you some answers, because I was still really searching. And, um, and really, that was the turning point. I went to that event. It completely changed my perspective on life. It, you know, it unearthed a lot of limiting beliefs. And most importantly, um, that's when I was introduced to functional medicine through Mark Hyman, who is um, the uh, head of the Institute of Functional Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic, which is um, the top institute in the world for functional medicine. And, and that was it. it, just clicked. I was like, that's what I want to do. That's where I need to be. And, um, and then the rest is history, really. I left my work. I um, completely dedicated my life to functional medicine. I got certified by the Institute, got taught by all the experts in functional medicine. Um, and some of them are still my mentors till now. And yeah, I never looked back. And it's just been such a rewarding experience. So my, I, I practice in London. I have a private practice. And pre-COVID, it was uh, a mix of face-to-face -face and virtual, but as is the case with everyone's, it's now a virtual setup, but it's, it's working.
so that's great yeah thank you first of all for sharing your story i love the journey and so funny that you went to a tony robbins conference and that's kind of what brought all, all the things together i don't think you're alone i think a lot of people probably have had similar experiences with that so i think that's really interesting um so so many points to talk about but i wanted to start just um at the big be- at the beginning so you all you seem to because you've been working in the medical sector for quite some time and in the pharmaceutical industry and so on have you always had a passion for medicine growing up where does that come from what was your motivation for entering the medical field to start with yeah i always always loved uh medicine my favorite uh well my favorite game as a kid was to play doctor <laughs> and, like all the doctor sets and i would always be healing my friends or my family or I just found it fascinating. A lot of my family members are doctors, pharmacists, surgeons, but really my passion grew from both my parents because my mom was a pharmacist. She used to work um, in the United Nations as a pharmacist without borders. And I just loved her work. It was so fascinating the way she was, she would talk about medicine and talk about access to medicine in, you know, in those vulnerable communities or in underdeveloped areas or areas where there's crisis. Um, and then my dad, he works in the chemical industry and he's just phenomenal chemist. And it just, you know, the, the, the air in the house was always about biochemistry and science and, <laughs> you know, and service, service to people. So that's really what um, where my passion grew. And one of my uncles is a, uh, is a very famous uh, neurosurgeon as well in Germany. And it's just the work he does was fascinating. He would just fix people, bring them back to function. So yeah, that's where my passion was. I always loved it. Always, I was the strongest in biology and chemistry in school. So I think it was always there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sounds like it was meant to be almost. It was meant to be, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so yeah, growing up in that kind of household, I can imagine. And since you had a fascination for it at such a young age, it kind of was like a natural track, I guess, to enter the medical field in some form or another. But I was interested that, because uh, a lot of people typically, when they think about the medical industry or entering that kind of field, they look at, you know, being a doctor in traditional medicine and, and so on. So, I'm curious for you, what was the reason you decided to go down the pharmaceutical path rather than going down the traditional medicine path? Was it because of your parents being in those more of the research, I guess, chemical side of things? Or what was the reasoning behind that? You know, it's a very good question. I don't have the answer to that simply because even (laughs) when I was at a date with Destiny event in Tony Robbins, um, that question, you know, he questions your choices in life and and it was it was really interesting because when when he questions about you know if you close your eyes and remember when you were a ten year old or a five year old what what was always your vision what you wanted to be and I was like I always wanted to be a healer whatever that form would take I always wanted to be a healer and at that point a healer is a doctor right that's how we equated there's no other healer um, but then I think because the, I guess the influence of my mother she had a pharmacy as well I used to spend time there and I was always fascinated by the fact that you can give a pill and then the person would get better. So I was always interested in the biochemistry side of things. So I think that's why I went into it. And I, you know, when you're 16, you're 16 year old, you're quite influenced easily <laughs> by, by what, you know, what, what, you, what should you do? You look up to your parents, right? You ask, you ask them, what should I do? And I think that's really, it wasn't, there wasn't a, a very strong uh, desire behind it. I think it just kind of, I went with the flow. 
Sure. No, that makes that makes perfect sense. And I guess, like you said at the beginning, what you're passionate about, what you really like is the research aspect. So I guess being in entering the pharmaceutical side just makes more sense because that's where you do the research on drugs uh, and so on. Um, when you, because a lot of people, when they get into, I've noticed some people get into professions, let's say engineering, law or medicine, and they study for years and they get the certifications and they do it. And then they enter the industry. Maybe medicine is a little different because I think it requires more dedication than the other ones. But a lot of times people will study those professions and then enter the field and it wasn't what they expected and they don't like it and they tend to make a shift. So how was your experience when you were actually finally in the field and working, you know, as a pharmacist and then working in the pharmaceutical industry? So, you know, I, I really, uh, it's a great question. I really uh, uh, noticed or appreciated the value of a pharmacy degree uh, more recently than I have in the past. Um, I think that with pharmacy, the sad part is um, in many instances or in most countries around the world, um, the pharmacist kind of has a role of a glorified shopkeeper and, has, and really has lost um, that connection with the patient um, and is not really applying his or her um, extensive knowledge of biochemistry in, in healing. And I think that for me, I don't regret it. I love, uh, I love pharmacy because I think pharmacy opens so many doors for you. You can literally choose to work in a hospital and take that path. You can work as a, in a really retail pharmacy. Um, you can work in research. You can work in the industry. You can work in consulting. And then you can take the route that I've taken into functional medicine, or you can even dive into conventional medicine. I mean, it just, it opens so many doors. So I think it's a wonderful foundation to have. Um, but I think that for me, I just, there was always, I was always searching for more. So okay. while it was satisfying, it just wasn't fulfilling enough. So that's why I kind of kept going for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing until I landed into functional medicine. Sure. No, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, I was just thinking because, like you said earlier, it's uh, how you described it, you know, that you could give someone a pill and they could have such a, a huge effect on their body and like heal them in, in multiple different ways. So I'm not familiar. So I was curious to see what you would say. So as a doctor, do you have as much of a... I guess, background or knowledge about the actual chemistry of like medicines and so on? Or are you more focused typically on treating, I guess, symptoms and diseases from a, I guess, more of a theoretical standpoint? Like I come in, I have, let's say, a chest pain. Okay, what are the symptoms that it could be? One, two, three. And then you apply the medicine to it. So what's the, what's the difference between the two? Right. So in the conventional setting, um, that is the approach. The approach is a patient comes in, you ask what their symptoms are, you match it to a particular disease, and then you and then you attach the medicine to that disease because medicines are approved based on their indication for a particular disease. Some are used um, out of label, and that uh, depends on the skill and knowledge of the of the practitioner. But in general, that's that's the name of the game. And really conventional medicine was uh, first came about because it was about acute medicine. It's you got an infection and you got treated with antibiotics and, and then you're fine. But when it comes to chronic conditions, that model doesn't work very well because chronic conditions are not infections. They're not acute infections. By nature, they're, um, they're imbalances that have occurred in your body over years due to trauma or choices you've made around 
um, nutrition, um, exercise, um, you know, your pattern, sleep of, uh, um, sleeping pattern, um, infections in the past, so on and so forth, that have led to inflammation that is now translated into uh, dysfunction, right? Whether it's diabetes or cancer or arthritis. And so with, when we put on the functional medicine hat on, we look at the body as a whole system. It's an integrated system. We don't look at it as um, organ specific. We're not interested in how your heart is functioning versus how your kidney. We're actually one interested in how your circulatory system is working, how your immune system is working, how your assimilation and digestion is working. So if we look at it's a systems biology approach to medicine where we're trying to identify the root cause of disease as opposed to the symptom and then let's just match a drug to it. So often, more often than not, we're not actually treating with medications per se. We are treating with supplements um, that are essentially natural ingredients that exist in your body. Sometimes we use herbs and sometimes we use uh, uh, pharmaceuticals. But essentially what we're trying to do is bring your body back into balance. Okay. So that's really interesting that because when I was speaking to Yasmin about it and she mentioned that you guys walk through, you know, like you said, like you take the whole patient history, kind of like your life and things like past experiences and so on. It just blew my mind that that could still affect you now, because I think that over time, if you have been, I guess, doing the right things, taking care of yourself in the way that you think you should, those problems wouldn't be there anymore. So it's fascinating that they, it still carries through. And one thing that I've noticed speaking to a couple of different people on the podcast and a woman I had who's an occupational therapist, and she said something similar to you in the sense that looking at it from a, in a holistic manner. And, I th- and that's something that seems to be, uh, I could be wrong, but from my perceptions, it seems to be growing that, that uh, I guess, the ideology of taking a more holistic approach to medicine in general. So why do you think over the last, I guess, maybe like 10, 20 years, because I think in the past, maybe it wasn't such a, maybe such a relevant topic, but now there seems to be a lot more awareness about it and people are starting to realize that you have to start looking at, like you said, as the body, as like an integrated system and there's so many different moving parts that affect one another. So what do you think about that? Yeah, so I think that the reason we have moved towards that is because the way the system is set up. The system is set up uh, to, you know, treat and move on, treat and move on. We're not the healthcare system is really not designed for prevention. It's not designed for optimizing health. The definition of health in our healthcare system is the absence of disease, but that's not health. That's just baseline is absence of disease. Health is a state of constant vitality. So what we've been focused on um, as a result is, um, uh, it's kind of a transactional model to, to healthcare. Right? Whether you're talking about insurance-based system or you're talking about private, out-of-pocket, um, or you're talking about national insurance, it's all about numbers, right? It's, it's number and volume and as many patients as you can see and as many patients as you can treat as fast as you can. So I don't, I don't really blame um, my colleagues in conventional medicine because they don't actually have the time to spend with their patients to get to know them, to build that relationship, to understand what led to their um, illness, because they have 10 minutes. What can you do in a 10-minute consultation? Not much. Although there's wonderful work that Dr. Rangan Shatterjee is doing in the UK, where he's trying to teach uh, general practitioners in that 10, 15-minute consultation 
how they can effectively um, get to a glimpse of a root cause uh, for a patient, for example, with diabetes, by simply asking, tell me what a typical day in your life looks like. Because a typical day in your life can tell us so much. It could tell us about your eating pattern. It can tell us about your sleep pattern. It can tell us about your stress levels. You know, um, whether you're lonely or have good social connections. Uh, you know, do you hydrate well? And so on. All these habits, all these um, things that you do on a daily basis are actually biological messages that you're sending to the body. Okay. Even the thoughts that you think also translate, um, it also translate effectively into biological messages in the body. So it's important. That's why we are where we are now, where people are looking for alternative solutions because the current model doesn't serve people anymore. We have an, an epidemic of chronic disease. It is just, it will, wherever you look, there are people with chronic disorders. And it's even in children. I mean, by 2025, the predictions are eight in 10 children are going to have some form of chronic disease. Wow. And that's staggering statistic. And it's really scary. And the reason for that is because of our lifestyle and the environment that we live in. It's highly inflammatory, so much pollution. And so the, the conventional setting where it's like, we'll wait till you get sick and then we'll treat you is no longer going to be enough. And it's actually crippling governments because we can no longer sustain the healthcare expenditure with this a huge um, increase in chronic disease. So we've got to figure out a better way. We've got to look at prevention, not just um, treatment. Yeah. And I think you mentioned such a good point that conventional medicine is more about, you know, like you said, transactional. When you're sick, we can you come and we take care of you rather than, like you said, it's not about it's about curing, not prevention. And like you said, uh, as if that's the statistic that an eight in 10 children are going to have that kind of disease in the future, then like you said, 100 percent, something's going to need to change because medical medical costs, like you said, are going up all the time even here like around the world like i know in the states the cost to do a certain procedure if you did it there whether or in a different part of the world it's like three times as much or something so all, people also can't even afford to do those kind of things anymore and i think um just to highlight um a point around conventional medicine i mean conventional medicine is incredible because without it we don't have this expanded lifestyle that we sorry lifespan that we have right people live longer they're able to cope with diseases in the past that would have killed you right in your 20s or your 30s so it's incredible it's it's amazing in, in situations of trauma or acute setting i mean it, it is incredible and we need it and we've learned so much from it but it's not as effective when it comes to chronic conditions right and that's where we need to look at integrative medicine or functional medicine or and I, and i don't like the labels to be honest because it's all medicine it's just we have to learn how to use the right tool depending on where the patient is on the illness to wellness spectrum yeah so like you said it sounds like you need there needs to be an integration or some sort of a balance depending on whatever the case is or whatever the the patient the patient has like you said to use the right tool i think is the best way to put it yeah and your focus is also i know you're very focused on the chronic disease aspect and you're constantly looking for new treatments and so on so what's the reason that you've been that you started to focus on chronic diseases and what have you found in your experience so far that you think could be promising for the future the reason i think um for me chronic disease um i mean it is it is the biggest epidemic we're facing uh, you can see that in countries where chronic disease is rife, like the U.S. or the U.K., um, you, the, uh, the implications of COVID have been catastrophic. 
because your body cannot, if, if your body is already inflamed because of metabolic dysfunction or autoimmunity and you get infected with the coronavirus, the, the um, repercussions are much, um, much more significant and, and the progression of the disease and uh, the potential of death is much higher because you're already, the, what, what we need to think about when it comes to infection is it's not just dependent on the virus, it's also dependent on the host. So you need to make yourself as much of an inhospitable environment as possible so the virus doesn't thrive because viruses, bacteria, they, they crave diseased tissue. So if we are healthy and well, our immune system is the best medication there is. In, that we, it's so fascinating that we still don't even know how to measure it very accurately, but the immune system is the best, thing you, best tool you have, better than any vaccine, better than any medication, that if it's working well, it can find off most viruses and, um, and bacteria infections. So, so for me, it, even in, uh, when I was studying pharmacy, the immune system was very fascinating for me. It, was, I, it just it blew my mind how it's organized, how it is able to differentiate between a major pathogen versus a weaker pathogen. You know, when is it the right time to mount an extreme response? When do we bring down the response? I mean, it just, it, it's brilliant how it operates. So that's why I find chronic disease um, so interesting because it's normally a dysregulation in your immune system that's not working well, coupled with, of course, other imbalances in your system that started in the first place. But also the fact that you have so many young people now with um, so many unexplained symptoms, not necessarily already diagnosed with a chronic condition, but you know that there's so many people, I'm sure you know, even within your circles that are you know, they have brain fog constantly, they, they're losing their memory, they have stomach cramps, they're constantly bloating, you know, they have, you know, range from constipation to diarrhea, they have low mood, they're irritated, the anxiety is on the rise, mental health conditions. I mean, this is not normal. We shouldn't accept it. It's not that, oh, this is, this is our life now, it's stressful, it's normal, we're aging. No, that's not, that's, we, we age, yes, chronologically, but we don't have to age at the same pace biologically. That really depends on the, what you do on a daily basis to help you uh, boost your, your, um, your health. Yeah, I think you made such a good point that, because I've watched a couple of things that talk about the immune system as well and the body's ability to actually repair itself. Uh, I can't remember who it was, but they're like, your body has all the chemicals and everything it needs better than any medicine to heal itself if you're like you said, giving it the right nutrients, taking care of yourself in the right way so that it can fight off potential diseases and so on. But when you come coming to the functional medicine part, because I know we touched on it briefly, that you're looking at the system as a, it's like a biological system and everything is kind of integrated together. So let's say a patient comes in, what, where do you start? Like how does, what would like, let's say I came to you, I have a condition that, or there's something I'm trying to be treated for where would you start and what does that i guess methodology or process look like to start you know making those changes that i need to make great great question so the first thing i i like to do with my patients is open their eyes to um all the ailments that they're feeling at the moment because most people come to you with that uh with the thing that's most pressing right whether it's let's say anxiety or missed periods or constipation or constant bloating whatever it is, right? It's the first thing that, that's the thing that bothers them the most. But then there's actually a lot of other signs that the body's been giving you for a while. You've just been ignoring, you're just not attuned to it. So normally what I ask, what I get my patients to do before my, they come into a consultation 
is fill out, fill out a, a few couple of health questionnaires. One of them is called the uh, Medical Symptom Questionnaire. And the Medical Symptom Questionnaire was developed by uh, the Institute of Functional Medicine. And the thing about it is it um, asks you questions about simple symptoms that occur on a regular basis, like headaches, dizziness, insomnia, um, swollen, um, swollen eyelids, teary eyes, you know, uh, so on and so forth across the different uh, major uh, systems in your body. And then it gives you a total score. And it's fascinating because when people fill it out, although the major issue was, let's say, the digestive tract, they're lighting up everywhere. And that, for me, is the first sign to show them, actually, you have inflammation everywhere. Even though this is your main problem, look at all these issues that you've accepted as normal and you're living with it. The okay. second step I do is um, really go through a deep dive into their health history and life history because in medicine, in functional medicine, we believe that you, the, the story of your life is the story of your health. They're not, they, they, don't, they run parallel, they're integrated. And it really goes to transgenerational health. I, I just did a talk um, for expecting mothers on preconception health because we now have studies that show that um, what a mom does uh, during pregnancy pre-pregnancy and during pregnancy affects the generation of her family three generations on. Really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's so for, for me and in, for, for us, when we we're, we're doing those consultations, we want to know what was, first of all, we ask about genetic history. Like, do you have chronic disease in the family, parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, siblings, so on. Um, and then the next question we ask is what was your mom? What was your life in the womb? Right. So was your mom, did your mom have a healthy pregnancy? Was she stressed? Did she smoke? What, you know, where did she live? Did she experience trauma? Did she live during wartime? All of this has a significant impact on um, the baby's development in utero. And that defines their health in the long term. Um, you know, how were you born? Were you born vaginally? Were you born via C-section? Were you breastfed? Were you bottle fed? All of this has a significant impact on the development of the gut microbiome, on the development of your immune system on the development of your emotional resilience. Um, so all of this is so important because that gives me an understanding of what was their baseline to begin with. And then we look at, okay, well, let's now go through literally year by year in your life. What happened? How did you eat? How did you sleep? Did you get any infections? Were you exposed to antibiotics? Did you break anything? Did it heal properly? You know, were you bullied? Um, did you have a good relationship at home? Literally, we go through all of that because that's all signals um, to me, uh, what has been happening throughout your life that gives me an indication of what was the tipping point? Because normally if you ask someone, when was the last time you felt really well? That's the point where things went, when the body was like, I can no longer cope. And that's the tipping point. And then if you understand that, not, some people have a very clear tipping point, like a major trauma or an illness or an infection. Some people don't have a, a, um, a tipping point that, that is a result of one a trigger. It's actually multiple, multiple triggers that led to the, the collapse of, of balance in your, in your system. Yeah. So it's I, really, we were like detectives. We're looking for clues. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I love what you said that, and I've never heard anyone say that before, that the story of your life is the story of your health. I think that is, now when you think about it, I think that's so true. And it's so interesting how so many different little factors that or points in your life, whether it's trauma, whether it's stress. And I had no idea that even pre-birth, you could have all these 
you have a baseline set for you that you had no control over to start with. So it's so interesting that you have to go so far back, understand what the whole story was, and then like go from there. When you're working with your patients, because I've so I'm currently taking um, I'm getting my hypnotherapy certification, and I've been learning a lot about the mind and how and the the power of the mind and how much it plays into so many parts of us that we we're not even aware of. And when you're working with your patients, is how does the mental aspect come into play? Because from what I've been learning, that it kind of, if anything, all starts from there. Your thoughts, your beliefs, how you feel about yourself. And then it kind of translates into physically in the body. Absolutely, yeah. There's a great book called um, The Body Keeps Score. It's a fantastic book for anyone who wants to read it. Um, and it talks about the impact of trauma, psychological trauma. Um, and it doesn't have to be you know, major or minor trauma. Um, and it's affects how it translates physiologically because there's actually a memory that is left in the body. It's like a, um, a physiological memory. So even though that you might have resolved the trauma uh, from a mental aspect, it might have not resolved at a physical level. Um, for us in, um, in, the fun in, in functional medicine, uh, so we look at the body as seven systems that are integrated. But at the core, at the heart of this matrix, we call it the functional medicine matrix, at the core of it is the, the three most important pillars, emotional, spiritual, and mental well-being. If those are out of balance, then anything we do around there is not going to work very effectively. The journey to healing would be very, very difficult because there's so much you can do in terms of biochemical correction in the body, but the, but the mind is extremely powerful because your thoughts have a significant impact on your cellular biology. It actually affects the cell membrane. And the cell membrane is what the body uses to communicate whatever you're feeling into the cell, into the mitochondria, which is the energy powerhouse of your, of your cell and your body. And so if there's a, if there, if for example, if you have limiting beliefs or very negative thoughts that you're constantly communicating yourself, I'm not good enough, I'm not loved, etc., that's that's signaling messages to your body that produce inflammatory um, substances that are not helpful or healthy for the body that really send you into more down the disease path. So for me, that's why um, when I studied functional medicine, I chose to also do um, coaching because incorporating psychology and behavioral change is so important. Um, as well as I um, uh, part of, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Tony Robbins, but <laughs> I'm also part, part of his uh, leadership training program because I want to learn from the best on how do you affect change, behavioral change very quickly and you make it stick, right? Because that's, and I know that I'm sure while you're learning in hypnotherapy, it's quite, it's quite difficult. And, you know, he's the best in terms of NLP. So I really want to learn um, how you do that because People's habits and um, the way they've been living their, their life is so well, it's so entrenched. Um, and sometimes it's really difficult when you dig down there, when you dig deep and you uncover those roots, it's, it's uncomfortable. For people, it's uncomfortable. They've buried a lot of that and they're not ready to cope, to deal with it. But that often is this thing that is the block that prevents them from optimally healing their body. 
So there's no healing without mental, spiritual, emotional healing. No, I, I totally agree. And funny you mentioned that book because I'm actually reading it at the moment. It's uh, for, I guess, for a non uh, person with a non-medical background, it is a tough read. It's quite very technical. It's quite dense. But I try to take, I guess, the snippets and remember what they're talking about. But um, like, like you said, that book is so interesting that especially when it was talking about things like PTSD and how, you know, people actually like people who have PTSD, how does their, you know, how does their brain work? What do they feel? Why do they still have those emotional reactions? And like you said, I think it's super interesting that you can mentally get over something or process something, let's say, but you, there's like a little, I guess, a scar would be the best way to put it in your body that you haven't, you haven't healed yet. So let's, let's use that example. Let's say we've dealt with it mentally. What do we have to start doing to address the, the, I guess, the scar in the body? Because I would assume if you've mentally gotten over it, then that would naturally translate into the physical. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one of the ways we look at your, um, <clears throat> how, let's say, how your, uh, if we, how do we assess your emotional well-being based on trauma um, or experiences is we look at um, uh, the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. So we look at the HPA axis. And the HPA axis is essentially, think of it as the master conductor of the symphony of your life, right? It, it decides, you know, who plays when, what hormones released when, what neurotransmitter is released when, you know, what optimally, when should the kidney, this, that, in the body function. So um, we want to assess uh, how effective the HPA axis is because the HPA axis is what registers messages from the outside world. So when you get stressed, it hits the hypothalamus, um, activates the pituitary, and then hits the adrenals. The adrenals are responsible for releasing cortisol and DHEA. Now, cortisol is, you know, gets a little bit of a bad rep always, but it actually it's in a very important um, hormone in the body because it's the one that is released first thing in the morning when light hits your eyes. Um, and it's your get up and go. It's what gives you the energy and the drive to function throughout the day. But then as the day passes, it needs to drop um, all the way uh, to build sort of your sleep drive. And then towards the evening, that needs to shift um, so that melatonin is produced. And then when uh, melatonin is produced, that's when you go to sleep. So yeah, so the way we measure your emotional uh, resilience and your capacity to deal with everyday stressors and major stresses in your life is by measuring um, your HPA axis capacity. And we do that by looking at your cortisol pattern throughout the day, because the pattern uh, gives us an indication of how well you're coping. Um, and so normally you release cortisol as soon as you wake up and then it slowly declines at the end of the day. And then at night, um, cortisol, of, there's no longer any cortisol, melatonin, takes its place and then that's how you go into deep sleep and detoxification and rest and stuff. Um, the way we test it is through um, a six-point salivary test. So you just uh, collect saliva over uh, six points throughout the day. And um, that pattern um, is a very good indication of what's going on in your life. So if you have a normal pattern, then it means you're quite emotionally uh, resilient, i.e. whatever comes your way, you're able to cope with it you're able to switch between sympathetic and parasympathetic mode quite effectively. Um, so it kind of gives you an indication of the, uh, um, how well your autonomic nervous system is. If your, um, 
if your uh, cortisol pattern, for example, is flat and up or flat and down um, uh, below or the, the limits or up uh, higher than the limit, then we know that there's adrenal dysfunction, that your body is no longer able to cope with the daily stressors. And it's people, for example, you ask them, you know, um, are you able to multitask? Are you able to do more than thing at once? Do you get overwhelmed if, you know, you can't get something done or um, if uh, many requests come your way? If people are answering, no, I can't, I, have, I can only focus on one thing at a time, we know there's a degree of adrenal uh, fatigue going on in the body, okay? Um, and it really has a lot of repercussions because cortisol um, can lead to hypothyroidism. It can also deplete your sex hormones and result in imbalances in, um, in your sex hormones. Very um, dangerous, uh, well, not dangerous, but it's, you know, it's a major issue for females and fertility and, um, and just hormonal health, also in males. Um, at the same time, um, it can impact your gut because it, it, causes, uh, it causes your gut lining to become more leaky. So that results in toxins that are in the gut normally don't cross the barrier, cross the barrier. They cause inflammation of the immune system. It also um, shuts down your immune system um, and so makes it less effective. So really, it's, it gets a bad rep simply because if it's um, chronically elevated or chronically produced for a very long time, we have a problem. Um, and so that's what we're trying to assess when we're, we want to quantify um, that emotional uh, or sort of mental overload. That's what we're trying to do is we're quantifying it. Another very simple tool, if you don't want to do the salivary uh, cortisol test, is a heart rate variability. Okay. And heart rate variability is, that, um, is the variation between beat to beat in milliseconds. So you know when you, it's different from the heart rate. Heart rate, you get, you get a number. But that number you get is actually an average of what your heartbeat was over um, that past minute because your, your heart doesn't just beat the same thing monotone um, uh, uh, continuously. That variation is a signal us of how well you can switch between rest and digest and fight or flight response. The lower your heart rate variability, the more you are living in that fight or flight response, you're unable to cope and that creates disease. And the more you're, the more you're, um, the higher your heart rate variability, the more you are resilient. So it's a measure of resilience because you spend more of your time the rest, digest, and restoration. And there's loads of things, loads of apps out there now, um, uh, and gadgets. So them, the Aura Ring is a great one. There's um, the heart rate variability monitor from HeartMath that you can buy and use with an app so that you can practice how to develop coherence and bring your body back into balance. Of course, hypnotherapy, acupuncture, there's loads of things that you can do. Um, but I think that um, it's such an overlooked area. Stress is such an overlooked area in medicine. And it's gaining, of course, a lot of more traction now. Because even in, even in COVID, now we know that one of the um, markers of uh, good or bad prognosis is how high is your cortisol to begin with. So if your cortisol levels are elevated and you get infected, with the coronavirus, then the, pro the um, aggressiveness of the disease in your body is worse with a high cortisol level. Okay, so interesting. All these things are so, so, so interesting. It's, I just don't, it, like how many factors that play into like just us as people and how we work between mindset, the things you talked about, like being able to measure your emotional resilience i never even knew that was possible that you could actually quantify how someone would respond like emotionally to a certain thing um when it comes to 
When I, what I like, from what I've understood today about functional medicine, it's a combination of, in a way, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, of therapy with medicine. Because you start, because getting the life, like you said, getting the life, the life story gives you what the potential symptoms could be or like where is this actually coming from what are the thoughts behind this and then after doing that you provide a i guess treatment plan to to fix those imbalances or to fix what what's like all the things that follow with it but you start with the uh the therapy part or the the mental part and then it translates into into the physical and one thing that one book that i read um and i i loved it and this is something that I try to do more of, but you know, I think everyone is not the best at it, which is sleep. So how how much does sleep play into all of that? Because from what I've learned, at least sleep is probably one of the best cures that we could have, like for our bodies, making sure we get enough sleep to to process in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sleep is critical. Really, it's critical for life and survival. When we think about longevity and improving your health span, not your lifespan, your health span, it's all about sleep. Come, you know, take center stage because sleep is when you regenerate. And um, just on the point you mentioned before I dive into sleep, with functional medicine or let's say integrative medicine, what we're looking at is the interface between biochemistry, physiology, and behavioral change. That's what we're trying to combine all three together, right? Because you can't have one without the other. Um, and so and, and lifestyle medicine, as a result, takes a, a very big role, a very big part. So in my prescriptions, there's always, yes, there's the uh, treatment part with where we're correcting biochemistry, but there's the nutrition aspect, which is super important. Then there's the sleep component, there's the hydration element, and then there's the mental spiritual wellness. So you'll, I'll often have breathing techniques, meditation, uh, some creative exercises, spending time in nature. And I put more emphasis on these and, of course, exercise than I do on the supplementation. Like if you do all of this and you don't supplement, you're still going to get tremendous benefit because we're trying to rewire the way your body is, um, um, is currently wired. Because most people, the body is wired in a state of uh, compensation, mm. right? It, it's compensating for an issue that occurred and then it, you, never, you never moved away from that compensatory mechanism. And unfortunately, that compensatory mechanism is only designed to last for a short time. But when it's employed in the body for a very long time, it causes disease. And that's what happens when we have very low sleep. Now, sleep is so critical because um, it's when we regenerate, when we clean up our body and we regenerate. So for sleep to occur, you need to have very low levels of almost zero levels of cortisol and then a, a good deep uh, amount of melatonin being released because melatonin not only helps you to fall asleep, but it also helps you um, to maintain sleep and go into that deep cycle of ah, sleep. Okay. Yeah. So it's really critical. It also has uh, many other effects. One of it is it's really one of the most potent antioxidants for the brain. It actually um, helps the brain detoxify at night, but most importantly, helps seal any holes that are um, in the blood brain barrier that have been caused by inflammation or toxins or so on. So it's super critical. And it also helps the thyroid convert um, the hormone, the inactive uh, uh, hormone T4 into T3 early hours of the morning so that it's ready to go in the body and set the metabolic rate for the day. So it's super important. There's lots of other functions for it, but these are the things. So when we drink coffee past um, 12, 
in the afternoon, <laughs> what you end up doing is you, you end up um, affecting your sleep drive. You build your sleep drive during the day. And that's because coffee has a similar structure to adenosine, which helps build sleep drive. And it competes with that molecule. And as a result, you don't get that effective sleep build and you have less melatonin being released. The second um, element is uh, when we drink uh, alcohol late at night. The problem with alcohol, I mean, it has many effects, but one of the things that is um, disruptive is that when you drink it, you um, disrupt the first sleep cycle where um, you don't go into deep sleep. And as a result, you don't get to release growth hormone, which is your anti-aging hormone, which is necessary for muscle rebuild and brain function and so on. Um, and so you get that first 70 minutes of your sleep. If it's not um, effective, then you lose on that uh, powerful effect of the anti-aging hormone of growth hormone being released. Um, and then um, throughout your sleep, it's your gallbladder and your liver and your um, uh, lymphatic system are most active during sleep. So the gallbladder, the gallbladder is effective between 11 and 1, and the liver is most active between 1 and 3 a.m. And that's when the most impact of detoxification occurs. So I have a lot of patients who say, oh, I often wake up at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. and I can't go back to sleep. What happens in that stage is actually they have a high toxic load in the body. And what the um, liver uh, sends a signal uh, to the brain to say, actually, I need more energy to be able to detoxify. So it releases cortisol. If it releases too much cortisol, you wake up because cortisol is the wake-up hormone. So often when, you know, there's a lot of clues that you can get from people. Um, and so if your liver doesn't detoxify you well, um, and it's not able to dump all of this stuff and get it through your um, elimination pathways, um, uh, then what happens is you're functioning today on yesterday's waste. That's how you need to think about it. Okay. So sleep has a profound impact on your body as a whole but also on your brain health, because then the brain detoxifies after the liver. So it's really that sweet spot between um, 3 and 5 a.m., right, where you really go in, that's um, very restorative sleep. And your lymphatic system, which is the detox uh, part of the um, blood circulatory system, 60% um, is active at night. Your lymphatic system, which is the brain's uh, detox pathways, they're active at night. So when you don't sleep, you don't cleanse. And as a result, you're basically every day, um, you're carrying garbage and you're walking with it and you're wondering why you feel like crap. And that's the I reason. See. Yeah, yeah. Listening to, your, listening to your explanation, it's so interesting. And I'm just thinking about my own life. I'm like, oh, that's probably why I'm waking up at like 3 a.m. Okay, now it makes sense. <laughs> now, now I understand. Um, uh, but what I like about functional medicine and what I wanted to ask you about is you said at the beginning it's making people aware of their ailments what what is the they come like you said with the presenting problem but there's a lot behind it that is probably playing into that problem and that might not necessarily be the core issue so you've been working in the field for a couple of years now and seeing patients so what is the biggest I guess lessons that you've learned now from your patients working in the last few years and how has it given you a different perspective on functional medicine and medicine in general? Um, I think that the, I think one of the biggest things I've learned is that the body is incredibly resilient. The human body is just so resilient and um, there's so much wisdom in it and we just don't appreciate it because we kind of take all of that for granted and we also give a lot of our power in terms of um, our own wellness and well-being to others, right? 
to the physician or, you know, or the therapist or whatever, so on. But actually, we have so much power in our hands to change the trajectory of our lifestyle or of our health, um, but that we're just not aware of it. And I realized as I um, practice more and more, um, you start to notice patterns of behavior. You start to notice um, uh, patterns of physical appearance. And I try to now really hone in on my um, physical examination skills, which is always a challenge over virtual, but, you know, we're <laughs> trying to get creative with it. But your body actually has, is sending you signals constantly, but we're just not tuned to it. They, it it's done so effectively in Chinese medicine, but we don't do it here. Um, and I think that lost art of physical exam is, um, is uh, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a real shame. Because you can tell so much of by by just looking at a person. Uh, for example, if you your nails they grow on average every six months, so you have basically a six month record of what your body is going through. So if, for example, your nails are brittle or flaky or they break, then you know that there are um, uh, vitamin and mineral deficiencies in the body. That there is some nutritional deficiencies going on in the body. Um, if your if the half moon that's at the base that white half moon that's at the base of your fingernails if that's missing that's a sign of protein insufficiency or deficiency either you're not eating enough or you're actually um, not digesting um, your protein very well there's a, a reduction in your digestive enzymes if you have white spots for example on your nails that's a normally a sign of zinc deficiency um, if you have ridging um, on the nails longitudinal ridging that's a sign of low stomach acid. So there's so much you can learn from the human body without even having to probe and test, um, you know. So um, I, I love these things, you know, like, for example, your tongue can tell so much and your oral health can tell us a lot about what's going on in your body. So, for example, um, if you have a white coating on your tongue, that means you have a dysbiosis, an imbalance in your gut flora that's contributing probably to indigestions and health issues. Um, if you have uh, bleeding in your gums, that's a sign of inflammation um, and also imbalance in gut flora. It needs to be corrected. Um, if, you, if your tongue is scalloped, so it's not smooth on the edges and it kind of goes in and out kind of like with the pattern of your um, teeth, that means it's an enlarged tongue and there's a stagnation in the blood and that the liver is a little bit overloaded in terms of toxins. It's also a sign of potentially low B vitamins and zinc. Um, there's just so much of these. If you have, for example, a crack, I see so many cracked tongues. It's, it's scary. Um, cracks in the tongues is a sign of, um, is, is an early sign of autoimmunity. There's overactivation of the immune system at the gut lining because um, it depends on, of course, the shape because if it's in the middle versus if it's um, uh, sideways. But I see like those deep grooved tongues and people are saying, I don't feel well and, you know, I feel sick or, you know, I have um, bloating, constipation, so on and so forth. Because 70 to 80% of your immune system lives behind the gut lining. And so if, if there's a breach in that gut lining or there's inflammation in that gut lining, the immune system is overactive and that translates on your tongue. So there's just so much you can learn, you know, the chicken skin that people commonly call it, which is um, keratosis pilaris, on, on the back of your arms. That's a sign of vitamin A deficiency and um, fatty acid deficiency. So there's so much you can learn from the human body. And that's what I, what I learned um, that I, I often don't have the luxury to test people with all these uh, amazing uh, functional medicine um, tests that are um, a lot more comprehensive and granular than conventional medicine tests. 
And it, I just don't, either because they're abroad or the cost is prohib prohibitive. Uh, but just looking at the body and understanding it that way and listening to their story and making those adjustments, it's enough to make a huge shift in their health without having to use all the other fancy things. Yeah. Like you said, everything that you're saying just resonates with the name of that book is that the body does keep the score. And like you said, you can learn so much just by just looking at a patient that can tell you so many things. But I can't believe how small the details are. That's what's that's what's blowing my mind. I'm like the nail. I'm looking at my nails now. I'm like, do I have anything? I have no idea. Um, one of the things that I've been thinking about uh, during our conversation today is that functional medicine I love the vision behind it and I like how it looks at all these three different areas. But I can also imagine sometimes it can be quite maybe overwhelming for a patient because there's there are a lot of these are a lot of significant changes that you need to make first starting, you know, with the mental aspect and then like from a lifestyle perspective. So, how do you define or from your perspective that a you've been able to treat a patient because I think you can get them over the presenting issue that they came with. But after, but functional medicine seems more like a complete shift of lifestyle. And that's something that would have to, I guess, continue to go on for the, for the treatment that they've come to you for to actually take effect and last. So how do you see or define, you know, when a patient has made that transition and is on, you know, in a different place? Um, so I think the difference, here's where I think another really critical difference lies between um, sort of uh, functional medicine versus conventional is that um, it, all the decisions we make are in partnership with the patient. Because to be honest, most of the work is being done by the patient, not me. I'm just giving you guidance and direction, but the heavy lifting is being done, which is kind of a reversal of the, of the equation. You know, the 80-20 rule, the 80 is really now with the patient, not, not the not the practitioner. Um, so it's always, it's kind of a negotiation. I normally lay out the entire plan and I say, okay, this is all the areas we need to work on. What is most feasible? What can we start with that's easiest for you to implement? And it's all about small incremental changes. Now I have patients who were like, I'm all in or all out, right? And so they just take it on and they want to do it and they want to get better in three months. And you know, over there, like your high performance, <laughs> you know, normally they're working in corporate um, or on their own businesses um, or athletes, right? Um, or some people are just completely fed up and they just can no longer, they've reached a point where their health is in such a bad state that they're willing to do anything. Uh, but then there's people, they're like, actually, no, this is way too overwhelming for me. I'm going to start by only cutting out coffee this week. And then next week I'm going to and it doesn't matter as long as we do it at a pace that's comfortable for you because every change, it adds up and it makes a massive difference at the end. So that's how I work. It's, it's a partnership. So um, I think that probably the biggest effect comes from sleep, fixing your sleep and cleaning up your diet. You can do so much by just these two. Yeah. Um, as, as a first step. Please no, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say the, the part around the mental um, health or emotional health, that's always a sensitive topic. Of course, you recommend my always go to those breathing techniques. That's easy to do. doesn't take time. It's, it's not, um, you know, um, over doesn't overburden the patient because, you know, meditation is not everyone's cup of tea. But if I have patients with major traumas, then I refer them. I work with trauma specialists and I work with um, extensive coaches and nutritionists. And I, I just refer patients when I feel that 
um, they need that extra support. No, sure. That makes, I think that makes perfect sense. Because sometimes, like you said, there are certain issues that need to be addressed, especially from a mental perspective and trauma and so on in the right way or someone who's very focused in that field. Um, but one thing you've spoken about today a couple of times, and this is something that I think about often because there's so many you can read so many things that tell you this is how to boost it, which uh, coming to the immune system. There's 10, everyone has, if you go online, there's 10 million ways that people say to like, that can boost your immune system. And you know, all these supplements and all these kinds of things. So, and I don't know, I genuinely don't know what to believe or not to believe. So speaking to someone who knows exactly what's going on, how do we start to build our immune system and how do we maintain it? What are the most important factors that we have to think about when looking at our immune system? Great question. Uh, very timely as well, <laughs> given the panic that we're in. Um, I do usually um, run uh, monthly talks with uh, a dear friend um, and a functional nutritionist. Uh, her name is Farah Hilou. She's actually based in Abu Dhabi. And we do those talks, they're free. Um, and our next topic is going to be about uh, building immune resiliency in children because a lot of parents are now worried about sending their kids back with, you know, the COVID scare. Um, so uh, I'll share that with you when, when that's available. You can share it with your team because whatever we do for kids is the same we do for adults. Um, it's just the dosing varies. But when it comes to immunity, the important thing is not we're not trying to boost it. We're trying to regulate it because what you want is a regulated immune system, not um, an immune system that's, uh, uh, that's underactive or overactive because um, an overactive immune system is going to overreact when an infection happens. And that's what actually leads to a lot of the negative symptomology of COVID where we heard about the cytokine storm. Right, where the body overreacts and then starts to attack the tissue and then we have these problems. And then we don't want it to be underactive where it's completely oblivious to the fact that there's an infection going on. So people, for example, who tell me, oh, I haven't gotten sick in 10 years, that's not a good thing, right? That's, that means that your immune system is probably sleeping and we need to wake it up a little bit. Oh, right? that's interesting, so, okay. Yeah, so um, because people are, you kind of wear it as a badge of honor. I've never gotten sick. And then I measure them and one of the important markers of immune of immunity, like your innate immune system, the surveillance, which is the secretory IGA is like really low. I'm like, well, you know, your, your surveillance is, is down. It's not working, you know? So, so how are the troops going to come if there's an infection, right? The surveillance will call on the troops, which is the second arm of the immune system. So with the immune system, you need to make sure that it's regulated. And the way you make sure it's regulated is, uh, a lot of the things we talked about today. One is you need to have an anti-inflammatory diet. So no sugar um, and no processed foods, no fried foods. You wanna eat as much as possible whole, a whole food diet. You know? If, you know, if you pick up something and there's more than three things um, in the label, then that's not a whole food, that's processed. Avoid it. You, know? you wanna eat something that's grown out of the ground um, and not something that's uh, been man-made right? So stick to whole foods um, and lots of green, dark green leafy vegetables that has a lot of the um, vitamins and minerals that the body needs, that the immune system needs. Now the immune system honestly requires all forms of vitamins and minerals, right? And fatty acids and so on. So we can't say that specifically you need to take this. I think everybody should be um, on a good multivitamin given the, um, given the, inflammatory lifestyle that we or environment that we live in uh, but really supplement is a supplement right it's something you add on top 
So it's not the things that I actually go to. The things that I always go to is clean up your diet. As I mentioned, avoid sugar, anti-inflammatory um, processed foods, dairy, um, gluten in certain types of people. Uh, but that's the key message. You want to eat a whole foods diet. And then you want to optimize your sleep. If you don't sleep, you don't regenerate. Your immune system doesn't get to rebuild. So sleep is really critical. Um, and you want restorative sleep, not just, oh, I slept 10 hours, but I still feel uh, tired. Well, <clears throat> that means you didn't get restorative sleep. So look at sleep hygiene. It's so important. You know, you want to you be able to be off screens um, at least an hour before going to bed. You want to be asleep before 11 p.m. Um, and if you need to work, because I know people are now um, digital, and if you need to work, um, then buy blue light blockers and work away, at least they block the blue light and promote the release of melatonin so that when you're done, you're ready to go to sleep. Meditate before you go to bed. You know, recenter yourself so that you're more in that parasympathetic state. Um, and I also work on your stress. If you're, constantly, um, if you're constantly wired and living in a state of fear and anxiety, that's going to, to um, dampen your immune system. As I mentioned earlier, high levels of cortisol correlate with worsening um, COVID-19 symptoms. So you definitely don't want to have that stress. So I encourage definitely don't watch TV early in the morning, uh, the news in particular, and don't watch it at night. Don't watch um, anything in, in the evening that's going to raise your cortisol, like horror movies or, um, you know, um, uh, heart-wrenching documentaries. You want to keep things light in order to put your, your body in a state of uh, parasympathetic um, rest, digest, and restoration state. So really working, looking after your emotional well-being is so critical in this time. Mm. And spending time in nature, wherever you can, if you're able to go out in nature every day, 30 minutes, that's going to have a profound impact on your heart rate variability. It, it really brings, it back, it brings you back into that balance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. So just 30 minutes in nature does wonders for your body. And then the most critical in terms of vitamins is vitamin D. That's really essential for your immune system. Most people are either deficient or um, insufficient. And I would encourage everybody to test their vitamin D and take vitamin D. Um, it's so easy to test. Um, and you really want to have optimal um, uh, vitamin D levels. And to be honest, I have not seen a single, all the patients I've seen, I don't, have not had a single patient who, who has optimal vitamin D. Most people are on vitamin D supplementation. If you're going to supplement with anything, it should be vitamin D. Okay, that's on the vitamin the vitamin D point, which I which I think is hilarious. That here growing up, I don't know how many times I've spoken to friends and they've had a vitamin D deficiency. When we live in a place that is like sun twenty four <laughs> every year all day, and yet people are still deficient. But it's interesting also that you said that you might not be at the optimum level that you should be. So I think that's also an interesting point. But how do, as a person, all the things that you mentioned are, are fantastic and how to boost and boost your immune system and, uh, as you said, sorry, to regulate it and to make sure it's performing in the best way. But let's say I'm a person now, Khaled, sitting here right now. How would I be able, without, I guess, going for some type of, I guess, medical test, how would I know where, where I'm at? What would give me a good indication of how is my immune, um, immune system? Um, it's a good question. I think that, so with the immune system, it's quite um, really hard to measure because the only way we know how to measure an immune system is by measuring the white blood cells. But, you know, white blood cells is just 
number of army, um, you know, soldiers you have in your army, which is not, it's such a rudimentary way to measure it because the immune system is so much more complex. So we measure it indirectly. Um, I think that uh, if you have any of those signs of inflammation, you know that your immune system is not functioning well, i.e. if you have brain fog, if you have headaches, if you have um, experiences of nausea, if you have uh, uh, disrupted sleep or inability to sleep, right? Um, if you feel anxiety or um, a feeling of heart racing, um, if you have, if you feel really cold or you are profusely sweat, or um, if you have any gut symptoms, because as I mentioned, the gut is the gateway to the immune system. So um, if you have uh, constant like sinus issues, inflammation, um, if you have um, bleeding gums, is always a sign of, of inflammation going on. You need to fix that. Um, but if you have constipation, if you have diarrhea, if you have bloating, that is all a sign that you there's a dysregulation in your immune system. So if you have any of those signs, then you need to work on improving your uh, overall well-being. Okay. And with the immune system, it's the gut. You need to look at the gut and you need to look at your adrenals. If your adrenals are not balanced and if your gut is not in good shape, then your immune system is always um, open for uh, dysregulation. Okay. So looking out for, you know, those, those smaller symptoms or the things that seem to be occurring with us more consistently would give us an, a good indication of where we're at based on, you know, those factors that you mentioned. Okay, that's really interesting. I got to start to pay a bit more attention. You can measure your vitamin D because I think you can order it now and it's just a prick test. Um, it's a finger prick test and you can get okay. your vitamin D measured and then as soon as you get the result, just start supplementing. Oh, okay. I had no, I had no idea that you could do that. It was, it was something that simple. I think it might be a good idea to get it checked out <laughs> just in case. Um, I wanted to, we focused a lot on the scientific aspect today and, you know, the chemical aspect and all the things surrounding functional medicine, but... You also recently, over the last, I think, year or two, correct me if I'm wrong, decided to also become a health coach and get that qualification. So what was the motivation for becoming a health coach and what did that, what did that change for you and how you work now? What, like, what was the difference between just being a functional uh, practitioner and also now being a health coach? Is it the same thing? Do they complement each other or walk us through that? Um, they definitely complement each other uh, because... Um, as a practitioner, it's very easy to get um, roped into the uh, role of diagnosis and uh, sort of treatment and prescription. And I think that there's something very humbling about uh, understanding someone's psychology and behavior uh, from a coaching perspective, because that gives you a much better handle in terms of how to optimize the treatment plan so that you are setting them up for success because this the treatment plan that we put people on is not um is not your run-of-the-mill treatment plan here's your prescription go fill it out in pharmacy and i'll see you in a couple of months it's not really it's a, it's a, it's a major um it's disruptive it's disruptive to their lifestyle and so you need to be able to motivate them so that they can adopt it and i can i see it often um the cases where uh, people come to me and say, yeah, I've been to this other practitioner or this other practitioner. And, you know, they just gave me all these things and to us, it's overwhelming. My lifestyle can't, I can't, I travel all the time. And if we don't take the time to tailor, it's all about personalized medicine. So if we don't tailor the treatment to match a person's life as it currently is, 
um, then it's very difficult for us to gain any traction or move them towards healing. So that's why I wanted to do the coaching degree because I, I see how powerful coaching is in my life. I've, I've had a life coach for many years now and it's been um, a, a tremendous support. Um, and I think that with patients, sometimes they need a friend, not a practitioner. So I think that, or sometimes they need a coach. And so you need to be able to switch those hats um, while you're there and be able to read your patient a bit better. So that's why I did it. And I think I really would encourage any, any physician and any, um, any healthcare professional, it doesn't matter what they're practicing, that they do some form of coaching training because um, whatever we're going to do now for the future is going to require behavioral change. And if you don't have that skill, um, it's going to be a struggle to get your patients to come with you on that journey. Yeah. I think that's such a good point that coaching, you know, whether it's health coach, life coach, whatever type of coaching that you need to do, it just gives you a whole new perspective on the, probably the issues that you've been working with for a while. And now you can understand how better, like you said, to because it's like, like you correctly said, it's very easy to give you everything that you need to do and just let you go. But if I can't motivate you to start making those changes and create a personalized plan, like you said, then this, I don't in the long. It's just not going to work in the in the long term. You won't be. I don't think the patient will not be able to make the changes that they need to make without having that perspective. Um, working in the healthcare industry, you you mentioned that you, you your one of your roles was to bridge the gap between innovation and you know how that's going to play into how it's going to affect patients. So when I was work, because I worked in the medical industry for a year, but in sales, so we used to have a. We used to sell a clinical trial platform to organizations to help them, you know, run their clinical trials. So I learned a little bit about, you know, the healthcare industry. I'm not an expert at all in any way, shape or form. But that point was very interesting because there was things that were coming up about decentralized trials and making trials a lot more uh, patient centric, which I think was why personalized medicine is coming into the play a bit more. So why is it so important to bridge that gap? And, And what's the, I guess... What's missing? What's the missing piece when, you know, people are thinking of, oh, let's make this drug or this, you know, form of or medicine and not taking into account the, I guess, the patient side of it? I think that uh, there's probably a, a few missing pieces in that bridge. Um, I think that at the moment, I don't, from my personal experience, because I was so passionate about integrating the patient into the um into sort of the drug development journey and um, as well as the um, uh, as well as the education side of things. But I think that the industry is quite heavily regulated and it's becoming more and more regulated. So I feel um, I feel for them because there's sometimes their hands are tied in the things that they are able and not able to do. There's a lot of restrictions from regulatory bodies, from governments. And a lot of it boils down to the fact that it's the cost, the cost element of the huge investments they've made to bring this drug to market and the cost associated by the government to pay for this uh, medication to allow access for the patients. Ultimately, it boils down to that cost aspect, which is, you know, which is very frustrating. But um, again, it's, uh, it's just the way the things are set up. And I think one of the reasons is that pharma companies sink so much money into clinical trial designs because clinical trials designs have been this way for so many years and they haven't changed. And I think it's time that they move, we move on because um, they not really, they often don't reflect the true reality because when you do controlled 
uh, randomized controlled trials, you're testing in an environment that doesn't really reflect the reality of, of the situation. You know, you're, you're monitoring these patients, you're looking at them regularly, you're, you know, you're controlling all aspects of their life. But in, in real setting, in a real world setting, that won't be the case. So that's why there's a massive uh, rise of um, real world evidence studies and registries, because we're trying to actually assess what is the true impact of the medication um, when given in a real life setting versus in a controlled setting. And we always see a drop, actually, in the efficacy. It's not as high as we'd expected it in the, real, in, in the trials, um, which is expected, of course, because there you're controlling, there you're not controlling, you don't have aspects. And that's, and that's where the, the person's story, life story, becomes so important, their circumstances. Um, and I think that for us to be able to bridge the gap better in terms of getting innovation to the market, is really having the patient more center stage and really involved in, um, in that process of um, design and delivery um, because ultimately they're the customer. I mean, for many years, the customer was the physician, but really it's not the physician. And th things are changing now because the model, the pharma industry model is not the same as it used to be. So really your end, your end um, goal is the patient, but the patient is not really, um, you know, take it, it, they're taking into consideration way further down the line because ultimately what's looked at is the disease. And again, we have to move away from disease-centered model to patient-centered model. That's the problem. Um, if we keep thinking about a disease-centered model, our um, ability to get more medications to the market is going to be more and more difficult because even the way um, economists or payers look at things is from a perspective of numbers. If I give this medication to X number of people for this disease, what's the return on investment in terms of the outcomes they get, right? But we, we kind of stripped out the empathy and the full patient story and, you know, the, I mean, it's not just, not, it's just not, not just a numbers game. So that's what I feel that if we, if we don't do that, we're, we're going to continuously miss, uh, miss the opportunity because there's so many people who need this life-saving medication and they have, don't have um, access to it yeah i think something you mentioned that is so so true which was especially with pharma pharma trials and so on which is the cost because i learned working in industry how like hundreds of millions of investment and the years it takes to just get you know to like run a phase like three trial and like you correctly said the efficacy tends to drop because phase two, okay, you have it's more controlled. But when you get to phase three and you're testing a much larger population, there's so many things that you're not like from the patients that you're not taking into consideration, which is why the efficacy drops up. And like you said, their hands are tied. Like work, you met the medical field is just about regulation. There's more regulation and standards that I had to learn about that I can even remember. But yeah, so it kind of like you said, it hinders the innovation because it might work, but I guess it has to be just redesigned from the beginning, just focusing on the patient, like you said, rather than the disease, because you're missing out on all the other variables that would give you a much better chance for that trial or that drug to be successful and useful, uh, I guess, in the real world. Yeah, I was a massive advocate when I was working with the industry to do to do design programs that are beyond the pill programs, right? Yeah, okay, fine, you design this drug to treat, but there's a lot more you can do to make sure your drug is more effective by making sure that the host that you're giving the drug to has a much more optimal um, state of uh, um, health, right? Because if your immune system is not functioning, you're metabolically uh, um, dysfunctional um, and so on, and then you take the medication, its effect is not gonna be as great. 
So that's why it's not just about the pill. There's no silver bullet, especially when it comes to chronic diseases. And that's why you see so many failed drugs um, or drugs with really marginal benefit. There's way more side effects than there are benefits because we're not treating the root cause. We're again just focused on, okay, what's the disease? Here's the drug and off you go. Yeah, like you said, from I think like we spoke about at the beginning, moving from a transactional approach to a more holistic approach and from preventative treatment to instead of curing, I think it just boils down to that at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Amal, I wanted to first of all say thank you so much for your time today. I have loved this conversation and I've learned so much. I'm going to have to rewatch this just to like make some notes and like, okay, this is what I need to change. I need to do this, but I'm sure it's fine. And thank you for bringing and explaining to me what functional medicine is and bringing more awareness to it because I, it's a, it was the first time I'd ever heard of it and what it does. And I just love the approach and how it takes into account so many different areas of your life because I think... I'm not a doctor, but from my from what I'm seeing and from things people I've spoken to, having a more holistic approach is so crucial in order to have, I guess, long term success for just for everyone in general. For my last question of the day, this is something that I ask uh, all my guests. What is the message that you'd like people to take home with them today? Well, thank you so much. It was it's really it's been such a pleasure. I'm so happy to be here to talk to your audience. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I think that the key message I would say to people is don't accept the first thing that you are um, told um, in, uh, in a, uh, any healthcare setting. Please dig deeper. Please ask why. Um, don't just take, and it doesn't matter, even if you go to a functional medicine practitioner, any physician, ask them for the reasons. Ask why this is happening to me. Can you give me an explanation? If they're not able to give you an explanation on the spot, at least they should be able to try or di direct you to somebody else. This is your health. Don't just give the power to somebody else just because they have the degrees and the labels and then the title and the experience. Because ultimately, nobody knows your body better than you. And our goal as, a, as an effective practitioner's goal is to get you more in tune with your body um, and give you answers, open your eyes to where the things that you're doing um, are not benefiting you and what you can do to benefit you and obviously support you as you need from a medical intervention. But ultimately, we don't want to see you in our office again. Ultimately, we want you to be healthy. We're not in the business to repeat business, right? <laughs> I want my patients to be healthy. Yes, you can come for a fine tuning every now and then, but ultimately, that's what we want. And so my big advice is do your research, do your homework, ask the questions, um, and don't be afraid to challenge your physician. That is their job. You should challenge them um, it, in order to get you to the answers. Because when you don't have answers, that's what's most frustrating. That's what most of people come to. They're like, I don't know why. And really, just by knowing the reason, they relax. They're like, okay, it's fine. I know why this is happening. Now I can take my time to fix it. So that's what I encourage everyone to do, is just keep asking why and don't be afraid to inquire. Yeah, I think that's amazing advice and definitely something that i haven't done in the past i usually be you know whatever the doctor says okay they know that's what it is but i think you made a very good point that finding the reasons is always super important and helps the patient and both understand why is this happening and what do i need to do to fix it but also what you said is taking control of your health and keeping you have the power to influence your health so don't just give it to the physician or to the practitioner whoever it might be uh, and do the, like I said, do the research and look for a second opinion. I think that's awesome advice. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I uh, really enjoyed the conversation. This was awesome. 
Uh, to everyone, guys, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And as always, hope it helps. Peace.